What a delightful privilege we have this morning to come together like this in the warmth and comfort of a building such as the one we're blessed with and to be able to render worship unto God, to enjoy fellowship one with another, and to appreciate the glorious fellowship, most importantly, with Jesus Christ our Lord and the very Son of God. To notice in the opening chapter of 1 John, verse number 7. As was mentioned, we are very appreciative, certainly, of our regular membership, that health and other things are as well with us as they are, and also for our visitors that have come our way today. As you can see, by way of the wall to my left, we'll be looking at a lesson, not only is entitled The Baptism of Jesus, but as you might have noted also in the bulletin, it'll have reference to the closing verses in the third chapter of Matthew. I would hope that you'll turn there with me as we look more carefully and somewhat more interestingly at those verses that Brother Greg read just a few minutes ago. First of all, by way of some introductory points or thoughts, might I ask you to notice some of these things with me? Let me make sure I can get this to turn here appropriately. The word baptism, as you might have noted in the title, also occurs in this text before us, and that almost directly leads us to make a comment or two about the nature of that idea. The word baptism itself in the King James translation occurs 115 times from the books of Matthew through Revelation. That alone should be significant enough to help us appreciate that it's an important concept, for if it occurs that often, but in fact, even in the Greek text, it occurs well over a hundred times. This concept of baptism, as easy enough as it is for us to see its appearance, is nonetheless in the world in which we live clouded in mystery for some, clouded in, in, in discussions that we might say are controversial as well as confusing, perhaps even perplexing. But might we quickly say it is not so because of God's revelation? The subject of baptism, from the perspective of the New Testament, is not confusing, it's not perplexing, and it has no need to be controversial. The only reason for those descriptions of the religious landscape in our world are because of men's stubborn presuppositions that will not allow him to bend his will to the revelation of heaven. Baptism, from what the God has said about it, has no reason to be encumbered with the ideas that would tend to make it confusing for some. I make that statement to say that we then this morning will be of a mindset to look at the baptism of Jesus and see if we can learn five simple things about it that can help, I hope, clear our mind with respect to baptism. How is it accomplished? What's its purpose? And what great end does it lead one to? If we can answer that, that will have done a great deal of helpfulness for us to revisit the simplicity, the beauty, and the elegant power of this baptismal scene in the life of Jesus himself. Well, those kinds of ideas said, let's then revisit this text and look from starting at verse number 13. We notice it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John. Pausing at that point to notice, we have a couple of individuals referenced and let's, in fact, state something about each one so that we are more familiar with the setting and the scene itself. Let's choose John first. 
as the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John detail for us some of the specifics about the life of this man whose name was John, we immediately learn in the very chapter in which we're now studying that he was the forerunner of the Savior. Verse number 3 of this chapter describes him in this way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The inspired writer Matthew then quotes from the 40th chapter of Isaiah and uses that to describe an individual. Maybe it would do us well to appreciate that just as surely as the Old Testament had foretold the coming of Jesus, it foretold that there would be one who would be his forerunner, his predecessor, if you will. This one who would be the one of a voice crying in the wilderness. John was that voice. He understood the mission, the objective, the goal, if you please, of his work. Notice also in this same chapter, can we not notice that he taught things like repentance, confession, and baptism? I would hope that that sounds very familiar to us as to be some things that Jesus would teach. John thus, even before the nature of the Lord's crucifixion, even before the character of the establishment of his church, he taught about the necessity of repentance, he taught about the importance of confession, and he, in verse number 6 of Matthew 3, it is said this of him, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. This individual named John thus taught many important things that were very unusual to those that were accustomed to Old Testament teaching. Here was John teaching of repentance. The necessity of changing your mind, appreciating the thoroughness of a commitment to what you're about to undergo, namely baptism. For notice in verse number 8 of Matthew chapter 3, it says, John urged his hearers in the following way. Bring forth therefore fruits, meat, or worthy of repentance. It wasn't enough merely to submit to the act of baptism. A life needed to be changed, reflective of the devotion, the determination, and the mentality of one's intent. This John was a very forceful individual, it would seem. He had no interest in being famous or popular or bending his will to the things of that day. Can we not remember as far as his clothing and the things that he ate? It wasn't the norm. John wasn't in the business of popularity. He was in the business of bringing souls to appreciate the one that was to follow him. That leads me to one of the next comments or ideas I've placed on the screen. John's highest and most singular message was that of Jesus. Whenever the opportunity was before him, he drew attention to the Lord, not to himself. In John chapter 1, is it not there said, John himself preaching, I must decrease and he must increase. The word he there referring to Jesus. Earlier he had already made note in John 1 29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He knew that he was not able to do that but he knew that Jesus could. John thus took upon himself this forerunner, this role as bequeathed to him by the God of heaven. And in so doing, he turned the attention of men to the one who could save their sin-sick souls and paved the way for the message that he too would preach. As we've noted something somewhat interestingly about John's baptism, we should maybe at this point make a very clear distinction 
though both of them had some similarities in that they employed water, they were very different in terms of their administration. Remember that John's baptism was not to be permanent. Later in Acts the 19th chapter, in fact, wasn't it true that Paul rebaptized some individuals who had submitted to John's baptism? Because by that point, the Lord had been crucified and that ultimate final baptism had been put into place. The one of which Paul wrote in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. He said, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Thus, there's not two equivalent ones in power, equivalent ones in terms of the benefits for humanity. There's but one by the time Paul wrote that chapter. That one baptism was not the baptism of John. It was the baptism unto remission of sins, the one preached by Jesus. With these thoughts stated about John, one more thing about that baptism. Notice it did take place involving water. John chapter 3 verse 30 had brought to our attention the recognition and thought that here John preached near Enon, a place in which was much water. Those thoughts will be beneficial and certainly useful later in our lesson. But at this point, might we now turn our attention to Jesus. We've identified the labor of this man named John. The New Testament uses an interesting descriptive for this man. We're aware that his last name is not given simply because he didn't have a last name. In that day and time, there was no need, if you will, for a last name. But rather, he is descriptive of what kind of work he did. In the same way today that you and I might refer to Tom the pharmacist, or to Bill the farmer, or to Paul the carpenter, John was the Baptist. The thing for which he was known was this act of baptizing. Those who were his followers were baptized. He baptized them. His role, the thing for which his name had become known, was as the baptizer. Might let, let, let us see that in regard to Jesus, that's going to be significant for him as well. Let us notice then concerning Jesus. In verse 13, he came to John. He came, though, from Galilee. And he came for the purpose of being baptized by John. All of that speaks greatly about the nature of the Lord's initial intent. That on this occasion, he traveled from Galilee all the way here to near the Jordan to be baptized by John. As Jesus made that directive and as he made that intent, that leads us to notice in verse number 14, it says, John forbade him. That is to say, John initially hindered or did not wish to submit to the request that Jesus had made of him. He, in fact, chose, would have preferred not to do so for the reason that is simply stated next. I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John knew very well the greatness of the Savior. He knew full well the character that he was the Son of God, that this one was greater than he, and John even put it in language like this, I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose the latchet of his shoes. Mark 1 verse number 7. Thus John said, I have need in essence to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? With that understanding on the part of John, it did however take a reply from Jesus. And such a reply we find in verse 15. Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. 
For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. There is an amazing recognition about that statement made by Jesus. Suffer it to be so now, the Lord said. Permit it to be so, John. I've made this request of you. Acquiesce to it, if you would, please. And might we notice that there was a reason that the Lord had given. Verse number 15 reads, For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. As often as we encounter that word righteousness, it does bring to mind the thought of what is right in the sight of God. What is acceptable, what is in accordance to His will. And Jesus thus said, John, suffer it to be so now for thus. In this act it becometh us, namely you and I, to fulfill all righteousness. We will need to rediscuss that somewhat later in a bit more detail. But at this point, that was enough to convince John. And in verse 16, it says, In Jesus, when he was baptized, John agreed and thus baptized our Savior. And in so doing, we notice that Jesus came up out of the water. And the verse closes by saying, The heavens were opened, and the Spirit of God descending upon him in a dove, and the very voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We can see the full approval of heaven in what the Lord and John had done. The full acceptance in the aspect of God that what had been accomplished and what had transpired was in fact in keeping with what would be the will of heaven. That too leads us to appreciate in light of those comments that a careful set of ideas might now necessarily follow. Five observations, five lessons if you will, that you and I, I hope, can use to help clear the water, pardon the pun, with respect to baptism. With that said, let's look at our first lesson, the first observation concerning these matters. It begins in verse 13. It says, Jesus cometh from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And we immediately learn that baptism, as it's presented in the New Testament, involves an act of choice an act of choosing. I say that in words like this. Jesus went to John to be baptized of him. That leads us to see then that this act of baptism is not something that is forced upon one. John did not go and haul Jesus to the Jordan. John did not force the Lord to be baptized. It was Jesus' choice. And everywhere that idea is presented in the New Testament, in terms of the baptism that relates to salvation, the same is true. You and I thus are not at liberty to forcibly baptize someone. If so, all we're doing is wetting them. All we're doing is thus covering them with water. The recognition of their will and their choice and their mentality has been roughshodly run over, hasn't it? Jesus chose to come to John to be baptized of him, and so it must remain today in that it must be the choice of an individual, a person's personal decision with regard to what they know must be done in order to accomplish that which would be the will of God for them. Notice also that has a secondary idea, though, within it. This act of baptism, as it's presented to us here, was something that was a public spectacle in a way, wasn't it? In other words, John came here 
to this place and was baptizing at Jordan, Jesus chose to come to him. And as the Lord was baptized, others could have witnessed, others could have seen, and others could have observed. It is thus not enough, and is certainly foreign to all the teaching of the New Testament for a person to say that baptism is some mental activity, that it is some kind of emotional response to another set of directives or conditions. It is not so. Baptism involves something that can be observed. Those thus today who can claim some type of emotional baptism in regard to something they've seen in a dream or something they have witnessed in some other aspect of life have missed the point with all due respect to them. That is not baptism. Might we also notice, now there was a time when the disciples, in particular those apostles, were baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts the second chapter, but that is not this baptism of which we read now. According to Jesus, that baptism was of limited character in that it was reserved for only a few, namely those that were the apostles. It was never promised to anyone else. And thus, you and I today cannot receive that even if we wish. But this baptism, the one involving the one likened unto the which Jesus submitted, you and I can receive. <clears throat> this one baptism then that involves a choice. Perhaps one final remark concerning it. As we've noted, it, in, it does involve choosing. That means it cannot again be forced. And there's an interesting verb used in Romans the sixth chapter that helps us remember that idea. Beginning in verse 16 of that chapter we read, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Two comments, if we might. First of all, that verb yield. Again, verse 16, it said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey. This act of service, of response to God, involves a yielding. We are not at liberty to force anyone then to be baptized or to engage in any other act of service to God. But notice verse number 18 again, that this act of submission and yielding resulted in being servants of righteousness. Here Jesus had said to John, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Notice that you and I in being baptized also, in Romans 6 verse 18, are those who are accomplishing righteousness. May we thus never forget the valuable significance and great importance to be seen in this, which leads us to the second comment. This notion of baptism... Notice involves water and much of it. Again, John in John chapter 3 was baptizing where was much water and the adverb much is present in the Greek. Thus, when you and I appreciate the thought of baptism and what specifically it involves, we can see that it involves water, but not just water, but much of it. Here, John was such that Jesus came to him at the Jordan Today, when we appreciate thus the force of baptism and the means and mode by which it's accomplished, much water has to be involved. 
it thus isn't enough perhaps to dip one's finger into some water and to sprinkle it in such a way upon one's foot or upon some other portion of one's body. Much water and a sufficient amount to be described as a burial in Romans the sixth chapter. It may be that no other verse in all the New Testament is clearer than that one with regard to the specifics of this. Let us then notice verses 3 and 4 of Romans 6. When the time came for Paul to discuss the action of baptism to the Romans, this is the language he employed. He said, beginning again in verse number 3, as he spoke of baptism, he stated it at first in terms of a question. Know ye not, as he begins, that you and I who were baptized in Christ were baptized into his death. And notice also, he employed the word burial, as if this was an actual burial in some form or fashion, because in addition he described it as being raised into newness of life. Might we notice this was not thus some emotional burial and an emotional raising. Paul described it in literal language in which these who in fact had been buried with Christ were raised to walk in newness of life. Might we appreciate then that similar things occur for you and me today. This baptism to which Jesus submitted also was such that much water is involved. That notion of much water harmonizes so wonderfully with a host of other passages. In the 8th chapter of Acts, when the time came on that road to which Philip himself and that eunuch were riding along in that chariot, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? How much water was there? Was it a small puddle? Let's read further. We notice in verses 37, 38, and 39 of that same chapter that Philip first asked, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. It was that eunuch who said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. At that point, Philip stopped the chariot. They both went down into the water. There obviously was enough water for both to go down into, and furthermore, enough for the eunuch and he to come back out of it. It clearly was far more than a puddle. In fact, given that a burial has already been used to describe this, there was enough for Philip to cover that man, that Ethiopian nobleman, in water. We can see an immersion is still the idea behind this. We cannot sidestep the issue, no matter how theolo many theologians have attempted to do it, that the word baptize in the Greek means to plunge beneath. It means to immerse. It does not mean to pour, sprinkle, or any other such verb. Hence, when we encounter ideas like the Ethiopian, as well as the other passages, that's what is being described. And is it still not the case that even Peter uses language not unlike that in 1 Peter 3? There he makes note of the fact the world was inundated with water, but yet the ark in which Noah rode rose above that. That same figure is likened unto our baptism in 1 Peter 3.21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. In the same way that the ark was lifted by the character of God's faith and their providence to the nature of God's commandments, so too when we submit to God's commandments, we are lifted above a world of sin, degradation, and shame and are able to live pleasingly to Him with the mode of salvation received by us and thankfully appreciated in life.
thus in two lessons, much water, and this is an act of choosing. But in the third place, the importance of baptism now stands squarely before us. Here was the Son of God, the very being who brought this universe and everything in it into existence. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. This one who, in a a moment could have beseeched the aid of his heavenly Father and wiped out all of those who opposed his way. He stated in Matthew 26, verses 53 to 55, that on that moment as the cross loomed directly in his future, he could have called 12 legions of angels to, in fact, remove him from what they were attempting to do. And yet he humbly acquiesced to the human fancy to take his life. Jesus was the most powerful individual because he was the Son of God. And yet we notice that here he came to John to be baptized. Doesn't that speak volumes about the importance of baptism? If it's something to which Jesus submitted, despite the fact that under the law of Moses, where was the command for it? All we find in Luke 7 verses 29 and 30 is that the Recognition of the baptism of John the Baptist was something to which the Jews were supposed to submit. The Lord in great dutifulness did exactly that. That still speaks so highly and greatly about the importance of this act of baptism. But doesn't it also impress us that John understood how important baptism was? When Jesus came to him, his first response was, I have need to be baptized of thee. John knew that this was an important act. It was not to be entered idly. It was not to be entered in a trivial fashion or without proper recognition. Jesus, I need to be baptized of you, not the other way around. Today, might we say that here we do encounter a bit of a distinction. The power involved in baptism does not rest in the hands of the one doing the baptizing. If I or one of the elders baptized someone in this, in this baptistry behind me, the power is not in me, nor is it in one of our elders, or the man who is performing it. The power is in the recognition of what is accomplished and touched in that act. It is the blood of Christ, isn't it? And as such, therein lies the power. But that still implies how significant this event is. It must never be approached minimally, trivially, without proper understanding. And so in our world today when someone chooses to be baptized just because their husband or their wife has done it, or just because a neighbor has done it, or just because a friend has asked them to, that's not a sufficient reason. You see here Jesus came to John to be baptized for the reason of it fulfills righteousness. Today, just because someone might want me to be baptized or some other friend who no doubt loves me dearly wants me to think seriously of it, that by itself is not a sufficient reason. For notice again, there are three prerequisites set for it, as we've already learned today. First, what about proper belief? I have to believe something with all my heart in order to be a proper subject for baptism. Notice John also said here in verse 8, what about repentance? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. I must repent then before that act of baptism. If I haven't done those things, I'm thus not a proper subject for it. And finally, what about that confession? 
again, Philip responded by saying, if you believe, and it's at that point, the eunuch confessed his faith and confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. If we thus are not of a mentality to appreciate those prerequisites and furthermore to act in response to them, then we are not scriptural subjects for baptism. It still is the case that Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We can see how important baptism is in regard to the fact it leads to salvation, puts one on the road to salvation, but it has a prerequisite of appropriate belief. To say all that is, of course, to say that this importance is highlighted all throughout the New Testament. Roughly six months ago, when we looked at a series of lessons on the conversions and acts, we saw in every instance that these individuals, upon proper teaching and the belief in their life, submitted to the act of baptism. And they did so with great excitement because they knew the joy that would be the responsiveness to it. Is it still not true in Acts 8, 12, in Acts 18, verse 8, that as these submitted to baptism, they did so expectantly looking forward to the great reward and benefit that came with it? In the fourth place, noticing after its importance, back to that reasoning we noted earlier, to fulfill all righteousness. Why then would I choose to be baptized? Why would you choose to be baptized? It's not because a friend wants me to. It's not because I think that others in the congregation will be happy about it. It's not because I think that perhaps my friends and others with whom I associate at school or work or otherwise will look upon me differently. It's certainly not for fame and popularity. The reason to be baptized is in essence the same reason Jesus was baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. That leads us perhaps to ask, and to note that John's baptism in Mark 1 verse 4 is described in words that it involved repentance and led to the appreciation of God's plan for the Jewish family and those of that day. But to say that is to notice that even though his baptism was such that it involved remission of sins, the Lord had no sins from which he needed remission. He had no sins that needed to be forgiven. And thus, Jesus, again, why did you submit to baptism? It's all rolled into that phrase he used. Though he had no sins, it is still the case, he said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. The Lord's baptism was not to remit any sins. It was not that his sins would be forgiven, for again, he had none. Hebrews 4.15 still tells us this, that this great high priest that is the one that we enjoy is such that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Clear enough then, isn't it, that his baptism was not for the remission of sins. It was, though, to fulfill all righteousness. I've tried to describe that in language like this. Righteousness, as is told to us in Psalm 119, verse 172, is the command of God. It is His revealed will. Jesus thus said, It fulfills what is right for me to be baptized. And as noted earlier, it sets before us a prime example of the necessity and the importance of that in our life as well. It still is the case, of course, that the ultimate character of sin is different 
Whereas he had none, we have plenty. And thus, when we're baptized, it is for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. And as such, it still, though, is in accordance to righteousness. For that is the revealed will of heaven for the forgiveness of those sins. The notion, then, that the Lord's baptism was to fulfill all righteousness certainly indicates that it's right for you and me to be baptized as well. And we highlighted that earlier in Romans, the sixth chapter. Again, in verse number 18 of Romans 6, for you and I to become servants of righteousness, we must have been baptized, for Paul said so. So if we are to be right with God, if we are to appear thus righteous in His sight, we cannot avoid and cannot evade baptism. Which leads us to the fifth and final point of our lesson this morning. Baptism is thus essential for salvation. It is on this point, I suppose, that the greatest controversy in the religious world arises. There are many who will say it's not necessary. There are many who will say it isn't essential. There are many who will say that it is for a purpose otherwise than to fulfill righteousness. But with all due respect, they are mistaken on every account. If the Lord submitted to baptism, does that not imply and directly state that since righteousness is involved, and Paul says the same of us, it is still necessary? We have, in fact, not one single example in all the New Testament of an individual in the Christian age who was saved separate and apart from baptism. Not one. That alone should, it seems to me, answer the question. Every conversion account in Acts... Paul's reference in both Romans and Galatians, Peter's in the book of 1 Peter, as well as the Thessalonian and Colossian letters, all affirm baptism has as its end the salvation of the human soul from sin. And given that observation, how could one possibly argue that it's not essential? How could one possibly have any hope of arguing successfully that there's any other way to contact the blood of Christ? when Paul expressly says that's the way his blood is contacted. Those thoughts leaded me, lead me to conclude the lesson in language like this. If Jesus did so in baptism to fulfill all righteousness, and if it's our desire today to be righteous in God's sight, doesn't it follow then that our situation mimics that of Paul in Acts 22? Here was a man greatly prompted by the character of his meeting the Savior on the road to Damascus. He knew something was amiss in his life. When Ananias came to him and faced him and said, Your belief now is insufficient, Paul. Your repentance by three days of fasting is not sufficient. You're still in sin and here's what you need to do. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. The simplicity of that language cannot be exceeded. Paul, as a man still in sin, though he'd met the Savior on the road to Damascus, was such that he yet needed to be baptized, for only in that way was he to be removed, or those sins were to be removed from him. Paul at once submitted to the act of baptism. And in that sense, he fulfilled the God's will for righteousness in his life. And my friend, the same remains the thing that needs to be done in our life today. When you and I thus reach a point in life of appreciating that we're apart from God, that we're separated from Him, but that He sent His Son to die for me and for you,
we first must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, exactly who He said He was, and that He came with the express mission of providing a means for you and I to be saved. Furthermore, we need to repent of the sins that have distanced us from God, for they, in fact, have done that very thing. God will not dwell where sin is. Psalm 5 verse 4. Furthermore, we need to confess the marvelous name of Jesus as our Savior and as the Son of God, just as the eunuch did in Acts 8. And upon so doing, we then can be subjects profitably in baptism and as such rise to walk a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. We can see then today by using Jesus' personal baptism as a case for study that we have learned things that I hope have cleared up many ideas for the case of baptism in, in general. There is one baptism today, Ephesians 4 verse 5. Have you submitted to it in your life today? If you are of a point in life where you know that you need to, as we've studied today, you can't be saved without it. Don't delay, don't hesitate. Time is of the essence and time is urgent. We don't know when the Lord will return and we do not know when the world will end. In fact, you don't even know when you may die in death. The point is, today would be the perfect day for you to respond in baptism. If you'll come forward at the appropriate time in just a moment, we'll be honored to make that activity as easy as we can make it. I'll simply take from you a confession so that others can be witness of what you believe in your heart. And then I'll assist you or someone else in the act of baptism. We'll make it as effortless and as smooth as we can make it, but it'll be a life-changing event for you. If we can help you submit to that today, will you not let it be known in a public way while together we stand and while we sing?